Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York State's fiscal year is nearly half over, and the state budget remains billions of dollars out of balance, largely due to the effects of COVID-19 and the related economic shutdown. So far, Governor Andrew Cuomo has been relying on temporary measures to keep the state afloat, but fiscal experts say it's time to make some hard decisions. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. E.J. McMahon with the conservative-leaning fiscal watchdog group The Empire Center and Ron Deutsch with the liberal-leaning Fiscal Policy Institute do agree on some things. One, that the amount of the state deficit is huge. Cuomo's budget office estimates it's grown to $14.5 billion. And two, that it's time to be worried. Ron Deutsch. I think alarm bells should be going off all over the place right now. E.J. McMahon concurs that the fiscal picture is grim. This has become now the most severe mid-year mess the state has had at least since 2008 in the Great Recession. McMahon says Cuomo's been waiting for a fifth federal stimulus package from Washington that would include aid for cash-strapped state and local governments, but that still hasn't happened. This was a high-stakes gamble, and it's coming up snake eyes, basically. Deutsch says state budget makers can no longer wait for Congress to act. Waiting for Washington to act is just not a strategy, and it's certainly not a viable strategy at this point because we have no idea if and when they are going to act. The governor has temporarily held back 20 percent in aid payments to schools, local governments, and others under emergency powers granted to him by the state legislature. Deutsch says that's having an adverse impact. Some poorer school districts who are more dependent on state aid are offering remote learning only this fall to save money. Some nonprofits that contract with the state are coping with delayed payments. McMahon says the plan can't last forever. He's going to have to eventually pull the trigger, no later than the end of this month. He's going to have to actually turn those withholdings into actual reductions. Both say permanent across-the-board cuts are not the best solution, but they differ on a better alternative. Deutsch believes that higher taxes on New York's wealthiest can go a long way toward closing the gap. New York is home to some 118 billionaires who, since the pandemic began, have actually seen their wealth increase by about $77 billion. He says reinstating a stock transfer tax that's currently rebated back to brokers could immediately bring in billions of dollars in revenue. McMahon says higher taxes won't work, though, because the wealthy will just change their permanent residence to another state. You're going to be really being in a situation where the pressure is overwhelming on those people to get to lower tax jurisdictions. Cuomo for months has agreed with McMahon, saying even the state's richest can't bail out New York. The governor says any hope of federal aid is likely on hold until at least after the November elections. And for the first time in recent days, he's begun to talk about alternatives, saying without the funds, the state will have a deficit of historic proportions that will be impossible to fill. What would we do to try to fill it? Taxes, cuts, borrowing, early retirement, 
all of the above. And he says all that still won't be enough. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Meanwhile, with school underway in most New York communities, parents, students, and teachers rallied outside the state education building in Albany against the 20% state aid cuts. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there. Hundreds turned out Saturday in cities across the state to protest $5.7 billion in cuts to school aid, joining rallies and car caravans in Buffalo, Rochester, Utica, Albany, and Kingston. Protesters outside the State Education Building in Albany carried signs reading, Tax the Rich and Fund Our Schools. They want Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose budget department says the state is facing a $30 billion shortfall over the next two years because of COVID-19 to stop the school aid cuts. Isabel Cardona is the field director of the Citizen Action Youth Committee. She says schools were underfunded even before the pandemic. Even before COVID, students from black, brown, low-income, and immigrant communities have been disproportionately impacted by decades of disinvestment from their community. This impacts their ability to thrive and succeed, and we need to see strong leadership from our elected officials to solve these problems. Governor Cuomo, as in April, as the CARES Act was being passed in Congress, he decided to balance the budget by cutting over $1 billion from high-need, low-income schools. He specifically targeted the most disadvantaged school districts with the most vulnerable students. City school districts in the capital region have already made cuts to their budgets for the upcoming school year. Marina Marco O'Malley is Operations and Policy Director of the Alliance for Quality Education. She has two children in Albany schools. They cut 220 positions on top of the 150 they had to cut in April or in June. Um, and they're cutting nurses, counselors, school psychologists. They are in the middle of a pandemic where our children have experienced trauma from sickness, from community rebellion, from all of those things, we are sending them back to school and telling them to do more with less in the middle of a pandemic. Where are our priorities? It is critical to fund schools right now when we need extra resources for, for safety measures, for, for masks, for um, a, more space in, 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 in our school buildings, for those who actually have the privilege to go in person. Um, our priorities are all over the place. If we cannot prioritize our children, who's going to? It's not clear if state lawmakers could come back to Albany to take up the issue before next session in January. For his part, Governor Cuomo has suggested the federal government must provide direct aid to states and localities in order to restore the funding. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartok. Major unrest has been going on, Alan, in Rochester, New York, after the death of Daniel Prude at the hands of police. A mental illness, he had a spit hood on his head. They pressed him to the ground, his head to the ground. He was naked in the winter 
And then the video comes out after a freedom of information request and a ruling. And from there, the police chief has now been fired by the mayor, Lovely Warren, and some of the top command staff is gone. We have the specter of a cover-up, the idea that the police, and they have what they allege is emails corroborating that they wanted to keep this quiet because of the unrest in the country. We know, you've talked about it, it doesn't matter where you are in the country, the relationship between police and minorities, especially young black men, many of whom are unarmed in these altercations, has seen a reckoning. Well, David, Rochester is not exactly the most inflamed city in the country, that's for sure. So that when people get as upset as they are right now, they're just looking at the plain facts. How do you handle somebody? Do you put a hood over them, so a spit hood over them, so they can't spit at you, and in doing so, you kill the person? This is crazy, because what happens is there has to be another way of protecting your police officers. Look, I have never been one who thinks that you have to defund the police, but I sure do know that you have to reform the police. This is the kind of thing, because they have a monopoly on power, that, you know, just can't be overlooked. Police have to know what to do in a particular situation. The fact that a man is dead, even if he has mental health problems, is unacceptable. And that goes around the country when a guy is getting in a car and gets seven shots in the back. This is the kind of thing where people are saying, no, you can't go forward. Now, are there people who are saying, defund the police, never give them any money, don't have a police department? That's crazy because we all know that people will take advantage of that. But you better have a police department and you better have police departments that are capable of not only enforcing the law, but doing it in a way which is both efficient and fair. We know that reforming police in New York is tough, right? I mean, the police unions, for example, in New York City alone, there's great pushback against some of these measures. They are, David, and the police unions are now taking a hand in the coming elections for state senate, which recently went Democratic, and they are basically endorsing the Republican candidates in most, if not all, of these contentious races. That's very important because if, in fact, the Senate goes back into Republican hands, that will mean uh, there's going to be a tremendous, when it comes to laying out the various districts and gerrymandering, will give the Republicans a tremendous advantage. So I don't know how much clout the police unions have, but whatever they have, they are using to elect Republicans. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartoff. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This month, September, is Suicide Prevention Month, and it may be more important than ever this year. The COVID-19 pandemic is making people feel isolated, spurring a rise in gun sales, creating new boundaries to medical care. The Legislative Gazette's Jackie Orchard brings us this firsthand account of what it feels like to hit a low point and how to bounce back. A warning to listeners that this story discusses the issue of suicide in a frank manner. 34-year-old Andrew Lease is a marketing analyst who lives in Glenville, New York. He volunteers for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. 
Through volunteering with AFSP, he learned to recognize warning signs that someone is considering suicide. It is also how he was able to recognize the signs in himself. Lise has been struggling with suicidal thoughts since he was about 12 years old. It started when I was young, and I didn't realize what it was. Um, I Essentially, I had thoughts that the people around me, my family, my friends, um, that they'd be better off without me. So I didn't necessarily have direct thoughts of, I want to die or I want to do something um, and put myself in harm. But it came more of, I don't want to, I feel like a burden to the people around me and they'd be better off without me. So if my if I didn't exist, that would be better for the people around me. About three years ago, Lee says the thoughts got much worse. He had a long commute to work each day with lots of time alone in the car just to think, which, he says, is dangerous for him because his thoughts have a tendency to spiral into a dark place. One day, he started to hope something would happen to him, like an accident. Then, for the first time, he thought, if an accident won't happen, I could make something happen. When I finally got home, I realized um, I had other options. And when one of those options kind of came up, I had a quick moment of clarity. And that's where my training kicked in with AFSP, where I went, oh no, that's a plan. I'm in a lot of trouble. Luckily, Lise had a therapy appointment scheduled already. What probably saved his life is having a provider who can tell when he's not telling the truth or pretending something is not as bad as it is and calling him out on it. And that's exactly what my prescriber did. Um, she let me talk, and I talked, and she was like, okay, maybe we should be looking at inpatient. And I said, well, I don't know. Okay. So she let me keep talking until literally I dug myself a hole, and she was like, all right, so this is what's happening. <laughs> you know, she, she let me walk right into it, and um, I know she wasn't going to let me leave that office until she knew what was going on, until I said it, and until either I came to the realization myself or she forced me Lee says suicidal thoughts come in waves. He likens it to panic attacks. They can pop up when you're not expecting it. He calls them instead depressive attacks. A wave of depression kind of comes over me, and it can come, and it can leave as quickly as it comes. This is why professionals call suicide a permanent solution to a temporary problem, because the wave will pass. Now, Lee says he stays ahead with preventative care, taking medication and attending therapy sessions regularly. It's like having a, a, an annual physical. You do that to make sure everything is okay. Sandra Goldmere is the area director for the Capital Region for AFSP. She says the numbers show that the age bracket with the most attempted suicides is people 10 to 34 years old. She says one of the challenges AFSP faces is that the data for suicide trends comes from the CDC and is always about two years old. So it's impossible to say right now if there's an increase of suicide due to isolation during the pandemic. She says more than half of deaths by suicide in the U.S. are by firearm. And according to FBI.gov's NICS firearm checks, during the COVID-19 pandemic, federal background checks for gun purchases in New York State have more than doubled. New Yorkers applied to buy more guns in June than in any other June in the past decade. The FBI ran about 52,000 firearm background checks in the state in June, a 121 percent increase over the same time last year. Although people buy guns for any number of reasons, Goldmere says this is something to look out for in terms of preventing suicide. She says when people feel isolated, they get tunnel vision on the solution of suicide. 
and it happens when people feel unseen and unheard. I wish they never used the term social distancing. I wish they'd used it physical distancing because it's social distancing is absolutely against what people need for their mental health, and that just because we are physically apart does not mean we can't socially connect. Goldmere says suicide becomes much more preventable when it is viewed as a physical illness that requires treatment. So it takes the opportunity to open ourselves up to being willing to look at psychotherapy, to look at medication, to look at um, self-care, all as part of what it can take to be mentally healthy and to support ourselves so that people don't die by suicide. Dr. Joseph Hunter is a licensed social worker and a suicide prevention coordinator at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. He says we need to work on destigmatizing depression and suicidal thoughts because it prevents people from seeking help. Everybody struggles at times, and everybody can have a really, really bad you know, moment in their life, so to speak, months, even years. And it can seem overwhelming and, and terrible and, and hopeless. Hunter says there is no one type of suicidal person. Nobody is really an exception to the rule. It could be your brother, your neighbor, your uncle, your friend, or your coworker, or even your spouse. Lise is a business systems analyst with a bachelor's degree and a happy marriage. When he considered suicide, he was newly married. It blows my mind that I could be so happy, but so depressed at the same time. It was very weird to kind of be in that, like, you know, because that's where those thoughts kind of came in. And when those thoughts come in, they ended up being some of those old thoughts of, you know, my wife would be better off if I wasn't here. World Suicide Prevention Day is September 10th. Now through the 13th, AFSP is hosting Hashtag Keep Going, a virtual event with seminars and training classes about recognizing the signs of suicidal thoughts and how to support one another. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, in 2018, more than 48,000 people died by suicide in the U.S. According to the New York State Department of Health, in 2014, there were more than 1,600 suicides in the state. In the same year, almost 11,000 were treated for self-inflicted injuries. In 2014, suicide was the third leading cause of all deaths in New York State among residents aged 10 to 14, and the second leading cause among residents aged 15 to 34. Goldmere says we should all take a closer look at those around us and look for changes in behavior. We have to assume that we're the only person who's going to reach out. Because odds are, you are. The National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8255, or you can text TALK to 741-741. Someone will answer ready to talk, listen, and put you in touch with more resources. There's more information at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jackie Orchard. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Generally, there is a long waiting list to be matched with a service dog, and the cost of training a service dog can average around $20,000. A foundation in Dutchess County is focused on bringing dogs and people together to end discrimination. 
Meanwhile, a foundation in Dutchess County is focused on bringing dogs and people together to end discrimination, and COVID-19 has shifted some of how this happens. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn recently visited the nonprofit Animal Farm Foundation in Amenia to learn more. Cows meander on a large farm that is also home to rescued and retired horses and rescued cats. Animal Farm Foundation Executive Director Stacy Coleman herself has four goats and a donkey. And while the animals may live out their lives in this haven, they also serve to educate the public, and they help socialize dogs in the Foundation's primary program, the Service Dog Program. We were founded specifically to fight discrimination and even more specifically against dogs labeled pit bulls and their people. Our founder got herself a pit bull dog from a local shelter not realizing what that it came with a stigma that everybody had opinions about who she and her dog were and it really upset her and she said I'm going to make I'm going to make a difference in this world. And that's how we started. And so what we have done is uh, we have worked very hard to end discrimination in animal shelters, and animal shelters are great these days. They're doing so much better than they used to about not discriminating and looking at every dog as an individual. We have been fighting all across the country for fairer um, dog ownership laws because in some places, and we're very lucky in New York because it isn't legal to do it here, have what's called breed-specific legislation, and the local government can come in and take your dog away and kill it just because of what it looks like. Not because it's ever done anything, but just because it would have, not even a genetic test, just because of what it looks like. So uh, that makes us very angry because people should be able to live peacefully with their pets, especially if their pets are peaceful, right? What has changed since the onset of COVID? Everything, everything has changed since the onset of COVID. So one of the things we had to figure out was how do we work, continue working safely with a population that is already has something going on. And a lot of our folks are immunocompromised. So we had to work out a way so that we could still work and train with them and give them support and socialize the dogs that hadn't been placed yet, but do it completely differently than what we had been used to. Fortunately, um, we've been in the summer months, so we've been able to do a lot of our training outside. And uh, we have been using a lot of video calls too. The need is always great. So we always have uh, more applications than we do have dogs to place. We don't do first come, first serve. What we do is we find, if we find a dog that has the right attitude about being a, a service dog, then we get to know what that dog likes to do best like what kind of game does that dog like to play is that dog going to be best as a hearing alert dog or as a task trained dog or as a mobility dog or as a psychiatric support dog what is that dog's strength and then we go through our applications and see who matches this dog best and then we do an interview and quotes here interview between the two so the dog and the person can interview each other because it's so important that they click and if they don't click on that first meeting it's probably not a good match and time to look for another dog. I think we have three in training right now. Two are in homes doing in-home training. That's something new that we've started doing with COVID because normally we would do the bulk of the basic training in-house. But uh, once we know that the dog is interested in doing the work, what we're doing a little differently is putting dogs in the homes with the people that we think that they're going to be working with so that they can start working together we do socially distanced safe outside of the house visits regularly to go see how they're doing to work with them at their own place uh, and that seems to be working pretty well for us too. 
In fact, she says it could stay this way. So one of the things that happens is people with disabilities are discriminated against too, especially people with service dogs. And especially if their service dog looks like a pit bull dog. And what a lot of people don't understand is that um, service dogs don't have to be professionally trained. They just have to be able to perform a task for their person, for their handler, that improves their uh, opportunity for equal access. So what we wanted to do was end the stigma for people who have uh, pit bull dogs as service dogs by getting even more of them out there starting to educate the public that it doesn't matter what the dog looks like, it matters how the dog assists the person who is the handler, the person with a disability. And we also wanted to prove that shelter dogs can do the same darn good work that dogs that were purebred and purpose-bred do. And we don't have any problem with purebred or purpose-bred dogs. We just wanted to show off shelter dogs. We go all over the country. We accept uh, nominations from people at any shelter. They, we only require that they come from a shelter or a rescue, so it can't be a dog that has a home and needs to be rehomed. That dog should try to go directly into another home. That's best for the dog. As two-year-old Lottie Dottie rolls over for belly rubs after bathing me in kisses, her penchant for pet life becomes evident. Um, she came from um, Zeus Rescue down in Louisiana, and um, she is a very sweet girl, as you can tell. Uh, I believe she was a stray before the rescue in Louisiana got her. She is now trained in the basics for wherever becomes her new home. One of the things we don't do here is uh, we don't use the label pit bull to really describe our dogs. If we ever use that label, we put it into quotes, quotations, because what is or isn't a pit bull is different for everybody. Everybody has their own idea. We say pit bull is in the eye of the beholder. So there may have been a time in our history where it was maybe three specific purebred dogs that were lumped together in the category of pit bull, but that's not the case anymore. So that has changed over the years. And now there is no agreed upon legal definition. So like in, in Omaha, Nebraska, there are seven different dogs categorized as pit bull. It varies from state to state, from town to town, from animal control to animal control. So we don't ever make the label, we don't ever apply the label. If somebody says they have a pit bull dog and the pit bull dog might be good for this program, we say, okay, and it doesn't matter to us what the dog looks like because we know it's just a label. So what do you use? Dog. Stacy Coleman is executive director of Animal Farm Foundation in Amenia, New York. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2038. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. <laughs>